1: Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. So top. Omaha. <laughs>
0: no, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop.
1: Well, I know that this show is coming out like in April, which in theory would mean springtime. But hi folks, uh, welcome to Scrip Shop. Right now it's still cold out. It's we're still snowy out.
0: Yeah, we're sick of it.
1: Yeah, I'm over it.
0: Welcome to Cincinnati. Move south. It's terrible in the winter.
1: And it's like particularly like snowing right now. It's gonna get super cold tonight.
0: And Is it? Yeah,
1: it's going to be like a high, like well below, not well below freezing tomorrow and like for the next three or four days. Ugh. And it's just like in case it we're still cold. It's still cold out. Don't forget. Everything's dry. Everything's cold. It's. Hi, everybody. I'm Jack.
0: Is it better to know these things ahead of time? Yes, of course. Or like if I wouldn't know until tomorrow when I check the weather, I'd be like, oh, dang, today's going to be cold. And the next day I would be like, huh, Still cold. Day three, I'd go, gosh, it's still cold. And what I don't, I have hope still <clears throat> yeah. that each day could be better as opposed to you who's like, you know what? This week's going to suck.
1: I just know it's going to be bad.
0: Well, the question that I'm positing is, is it better to just know that it's going to be bad? It's
1: always or... better to know. It's always better to
0: know. But you don't know. Yeah,
1: I'm sorry. That's, I, I'm, if, I, if you're asking me, knowing what I do and the way I operate, it's always better. I'd rather know something than not know something. I think for the most part. When it comes to the weather,
0: Well, this is Allison.
1: Yeah, hi. This is like the weirdest downer of the beginning of our show ever.
0: I'm the hopeful one here, so welcome to Script Shop. We're really happy to have you here, where we talk to writers about what they've written and the things that give them their downs and their ups. And their ups, because it's important to have both. It is important to have both. You, You know, that's the way life is. Sure. You know? Sometimes you have one cold day, sometimes you have four, and you just don't know until you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> until you tune into a so, podcast to find out how bad the weather's going to be four Cincinnati, days In Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: <laughs> mm, great. Um, we love talking to writers about why they are the only person in the whole world that could have written their scripts. Um, if Jack had written a script today, it probably would have been about terrible weather. It would have
1: been called gray skies and freezing.
0: Do you think we would have even put it on the show?
1: No, I just, there's no way a script me writing about the weather would ever make it on this show <laughs> in a million years.
0: Ugh, thank God for that, yeah. too. <laughs> so we love talking to our writers about their exciting stories, and um, we're happy that you're tuning in.
1: Yes, and we're happy that uh, our writer for this week's show, Joya Bradley, sent us a script called Rex Unplugged.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a 117-page powerhouse odyssey of a feature film it's energetic and realistic with odes to classical greek mythology and when i say odes i mean pretty pretty
1: when you say odes do you mean eds i mean (laughs) (laughs) because this is this is in in the grand tradition of taking classic tales and updating them with modern very cool modern characters and modern storytelling this is oedipus rex
0: yes it is oedipus rex so thank you for tuning in listeners because you are you know this is a rock and roll script You're it's not a treat it's today. like it, it is it is so cool rock and roll in the sense of like energy and energetic because of mm-hmm. course there's a massive hip hop element Absolutely. to the story so we're excited about sharing it with you so don't forget that you can get online you can read the script at scriptshopshow.com um, you can also connect with us on facebook instagram or twitter looking up script script scrub. Try it again. We're not cutting this out. Keep going. Uh, It's like I've never done the show or something. Script,
1: scrop, scro. scro.
0: (laughs) Script, shop, show. There you go. Bazinga. Don't say that.
1: That's got to be a copyrighted thing. Frank, you should be furious right now. You can also find us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Did you say that already? Then look us up, script, shop, on all those things? I think so. I don't know.
0: So if you want to send us some money because we're doing such a great job. Because you're
1: really impressed by how well the show is going so far. Go to
0: patreon.com. Shoot some buccarinis and buccarunos our way so that we can make the show better for you. <laughs> yeah, right, we're trying.
1: Also, if you do listen to the show, if, if you've written something and you do listen to the show and you're interested in maybe getting our attention and maybe having us read something sooner because we do have a bit of a backlog we of scripts really do. that have been yeah. sent to us. And if you do want to say, hey, I listen to the show, maybe listen to my thing ahead of time, read my thing quicker. If you include the phrase that pays. Hot burrito. That will be a signal for us that you listen to the show and we will read your script sooner.
0: Here's another question: How much Taco Bell can you eat at one time?
1: uh, But that's a question that you, if when you learn the answer, you regret the knowledge.
0: It's like I know how much I can eat, and every time I admit it to Philip, because we go through Taco Bell, and I order, you know, two quesaditos and a double stuff burrito. Okay. I just feel embarrassed. He's like, he says, "You are an impressive woman," and I'm like, "I know that I am. Thank you. I'm also hungry."
1: It's important to know your limits, but questions like that—it's knowledge that you don't—it's—it's it's knowledge you regret.
0: He says he struggles through like his second taco, and I'm just like crushing caseritos left and uh, right.
1: We should probably bring Joya in because she's been very patiently waiting. There we while go. We, uh, let's
0: talk about art.
1: Let's, yeah, please, let's, yeah, right. Uh, hi, Joya Bradley. Hello, are you there?
2: Hello, I am.
1: Welcome to the show, Joya. What do you
0: get from Taco Bell?
1: Fair question. Uh,
2: uh, I'm from Texas and now I'm, uh, living up in New York. We don't do Taco Bell. That a
1: girl.
0: Thank you. I'm also from Texas, but I'm obsessed with it. So She's what part in of Texas oh, are you from?
2: Is not. <laughs> you disappoint, Alex, and you disappoint.
0: <laughs> Man, <laughs> my life, my, my show career is over. <laughs> are you
1: guys, were you guys maybe close to each other in Texas? I mean, it's, I know it's a big state for sure, but.
2: I grew up around Houston, right outside Spring, Texas, and Dallas. So, Mm -hmm. Well, I'm from
0: uh, a small town called Farmersville, and Taco Delight was my jam. Taco Bell is the classier version of Taco Delight. (laughs) 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 Um, And you said you grew up in Texas, but how long were you there before you moved to New York?
2: Oh, God. Uh, So, dad was transferred when I was seven. So, family moved, and then I was there until about... 26 and then came up to uh new york yeah so you're pretty much a texan through and through it seems like yeah i claim it every now and then i'm an expat as we say yeah mm-hmm.
1: what was the uh what was what was it like the shift from texas to the are you in like new york city new york city
2: yeah so well i just moved right outside just now because i've just got a house thank god oh, cool. um rents are crazy in new york so yeah. when you can get a house for cheaper than rent you know There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So, basically, I forgot your question. What was
1: it? What was it like going from the the Lone Star State to the Big Apple?
2: Oh, it was uh, incredibly, how should I put it, Um, just, oh, gosh, uh, ever essence. It was just exuberance all around because I went from pretty much an all white um, surroundings which is where I lived Mm -hmm. um, to, and the Bible belt as well. Like everything being shoved down your throat to when you get to New York, everybody's like, live and let live. Mm -hmm. You have every, you know, country in the world represented and you're practically living on top of people. It was, to me, it was the best feeling in the world.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, and that's a big night and day kind of shift.
2: Oh yeah. It took a while to get used to it. I mean, it took me about a year. It's, it's really hard when people come and anybody will tell you this. So uh, about that first year in, a lot of people go through what we call, you know, the five stages of grief. You're trying to shed your skin and then try and fit into this city that will literally chew you up and spit you out if mm-hmm. you're not careful. And, you know, you sink or swim. You got to do it and just get in there and, and make your own way.
1: Well, it sounds like you've been it sounds like you've been swimming more than sinking, right?
2: I hope so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was really the impetus to move? You know, you you said you moved when you were 26. So what, what drew you to the city?
2: Like I said, I didn't really come here to move. I came up here to see a friend oh. uh, from college and was just staying three weeks with her. I was like, hey, let's just chill, hang out, catch up. And when I got here, ran into some other friends, uh, hung out with them one night with an agent. And the agent was like, hey. Um, you got any free time tomorrow? I was like, sure. He's like, great. I'm sending you on the musical and I'm sending you on a national commercial and I'm sending you on this. And I went, I booked all 3 Woo-hoo. And then, but I couldn't go back home and then come back up. Mm. So it wound up that I just had to stay. Mm-hmm. And then it took off from there.
0: Oh, that's a really fun. That's a fantastic that's origin like a, story. It, yeah, exactly. Was I mean, that <laughs> must've been very, that must've been very exciting for you then.
2: Yeah, it was a little scary as well because um, I got thrown into the fire pretty early, but uh, enjoyed it ever since. So you started You started off as a performer then? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Do definitely. you still perform currently? I do. I do. I'll jump back in. I um, took about 10 to 12 years out of performing um, and went back to school to study film um, and business management and really production along with contracts and all that stuff, because I wanted to know the business side of it as well, you know, because budgeting and all that, you you have to know it when you write a script, or at least that's my take on it. Um, and then from there, just really stuck into the creative endeavors on the backside of everything and started producing, writing, and directing. And then just about two years ago, I started jumping back into performing.
1: And, you know, because you're in New York City, you have so many options as far as whether you're ta- – when, when you say performing, there's there's film, there's television, there's stage. Uh, was it a little bit of all three? All, uh, d-
2: it was a little bit of all three, mostly um, stage because that is my my hub. Okay. Um, you know, I do do film and TV um, as well. But, yeah, getting back into it, I just finished up a show, Romeo and Juliet, um – and so uh, was the nurse, and just finished that up to some really great reviews. So it's it's been well rewarding.
0: Oh congratulations. Have you always done classical stuff?
2: I have since I was about twelve. My mom kind of got me into that, and then I was lucky enough that where my high school, you know how Texas is, uh, they you know they compete for everything. They compete in sports, band, drama, everything. So my school was one of the top schools in Texas um, that always uh, got called out so I had a really great teacher who was there um, when I went to college uh, some really great people there that I went over to London to study I just was had the perfect storm of actually being able to study with the greats in classical theater and actually you know kind of become good at it you know
1: what's uh you know because I, a lot of people when they start hearing about things that are called the classics i you know they, it's an easy way to get turned off because it's written so long ago and they people feel like they can't relate to it but you as somebody who's working in this industry right now and who is writing and acting and has a working knowledge of a lot of these classic stories why should people not get turned off when they hear things like the classics i
2: think because number 1 they have to you have to remember that when it was written, um, they pretty much spoke like us. And what I mean by that is when they were written in their time period, for instance, um, the playwrights of that time had the unique ability to be able to write something but hit on three levels and that would be the lowest of the lows the middle class and the high high Mm highbrow people so they could take one phrase and it would just um mean something different to each and every um class of people that there were so when you go into these new you know what we call i'd say new plays but when you go into these new experiences If it's done correctly, will you understand every word? No, but you will get the emotion. You will know the story of what's going on once you see it performed by people who actually know Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And I think it did help that I did go to London um, and study with people who actually, you know, it's their, It's it's basically their stuff, um, their playwrights and, you know, learn from them how they do it, and then was able to bring it back here to America.
1: And plus also you're talking about, on some level also, universal themes, a lot of the older stuff, especially if you're talking about Oedipus Rex, like the script that you sent us, Rex Unplugged, that's what in the 400 BC, you're, you're talking about a story now that's as as original as storytelling almost gets and is clearly tapping into a lot of just sort of intrinsic human elements that, that, that still exist no matter how long ago they were written about.
2: Exactly. Exactly. You, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, so all the classical stories that are out there, you know, all those, stories that we say oh there's only 13 types of stories Mm. pretty much all the classics have done it first they did it first Mm -hmm. um and so we I was able to go in and basically look at these stories and say hey how can we how can we update them and you really don't have to update them because we've all dealt with it or we've all heard about it we've all seen it um and what's funny about Rex I'll just jump right in here please do um was that that particular story is actually a true story? So, when it was written, it was written about, I would say, 75 years after it had happened. So, this would be like if we were talking about, you know, Kim Kardashian and Kanye, mm-hmm. and then I wrote a script about them 10 years later, like I already write it, so let's just say we're, you know, 2029, mm-hmm. I wrote about it, but everybody knows about the story. You know, it's like a TMZ thing. So by the time Sophocles wrote this, everybody knew what had happened and he was bringing this story back up to date. So at that point, you know, while it is considered a classic, it was actually a contemporary for them. But it's it's actually a contemporary story for us as well.
1: Yeah,
0: man. I like that reference at TMZ there because, you know, you're talking about that this was something that everybody knew about. And then by the time it was written, it's just kind of like. Bringing it back up. Well, this whole refresh on the tale is really fun in the way that you wrote Rex Unplugged, because of course you have you've got a lot of music influences. You've got them using phones. You've got people developing apps. They're in a. They're. I think they're in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
2: they're definitely in New York. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, it's it's a very modern take on it, um, akin to like a lot of the stuff we see redone. In film when, uh, you know, Moulin Rouge, they used a lot of updated music. There's a lot of things that are trying to kind of revamp and re-update more classical stories in a sense. Uh
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and in fact, you go out of your way in the way that you've written Rex Unplugged here. It's uh, the script is sort of written as a performance. Not only are you seeing this sort of modern retelling of Oedipus Rex, but it's when it cuts to the film story before that. It's like you're seeing it on a stage at a club somewhere. And in fact, the the, the man who plays Sophocles, who's telling this grand tale, there there's sort of a build up to how important he is as a character too. In that he's he, he's telling the audience, "Hey, I'm writing about stuff that you know." about, that you think you know about, but you don't, because I'm going to a place where nobody else is willing to go to.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Um, And that idea came to me, uh, basically, we had a show here a long time ago called The Donkey Show up here in New York. Mm -hmm. And it was basically a Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, But they set it in a meatpacking district, which is just downtown New York, back where um, there were just all these open warehouses. Where, yeah, they used to do all the meat meatpacking. Um, now they're all fancy and nobody can afford them. Um, <laughs> so they set, they put it in a club-like atmosphere. So it was an event. So it wasn't like really pure theater. Like you would go and you would sit down and watch a show. Um, when you came in, um, we were invited to a wedding. And it was the wedding that was happening in the play. And so you were invited to this wedding and then they went on as all the actors in the troupe had, um, were on roller skates. It was in a disco era. Oh yeah. That sounds amazing. They were trying. So they invite you to this wedding and then you watch these actors try and get ready to put on this play for the wedding troupe. And then at the very end, you were all into the wedding and booze was flowing and the music got going and everybody. So it was this whole club-like experience. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring to here, which was yes, that this troop of actors are coming by to tell you this. And then everybody who's in this troop of actors actually winds up in the film. So it's a film within a film. Mm-hmm. Everything's important. Yeah, music is super, super important because uh, we are basing it off of Rex Tremende from Mozart. Mm-hmm. Um, The classical piece and then bringing it and updating that as a current theme that will run throughout uh, using, you know, Harlem jazz, Brooklyn underground uh, rave music um, and a little bit of gospel and some Nigerian pop because it's all closely related to each of the family segment stories.
1: And I was curious, you know, like, that was one of the questions I had was in, in addition to having written the script and sort of, you know, come up with some of these different uh, songs and rap parts to the story, how much of the music part of it do you have a hand in? Or are you looking for collaboration on that sort of thing?
2: <laughs> well, I just had a, um, a meeting with my composers last night. Yes. Um, <laughs> so basically what we're going to do is I'm actually going the route of, of, uh, what Andrew Lloyd Webber did for Jesus Christ Superstar, except we're not going to bring it to the stage first, we're going to bring it to film, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be brought up as a compilation album. So we are doing the title song first and getting that going um, and basically composing that song. I've got all kinds of singers who are all from Broadway, uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle, Met Opera, uh, we're trying to get Adam from the Beastie Boys. Oh, um, get out. And to be um, Cleese, and we're actually going to film it and uh, go ahead and get this demo out to get more investors on so that then we can actually go ahead and, you know, start pre-production for the film while also building up the other two songs, The Pretty Eyes, and um, there's one other song that's in there, and building that one up. So mm-hmm. this film will be scored as films are scored, but there will be components of certain music that's in there that will be actually songs that are written um, for this piece. So I just want to make clear, though, this is not a musical. Um, Every song that's in there that is being performed, it is being performed as a performance Piece, yeah. or like you're in a club, so because I know that, so this is not La La Land or anything like that. I kind of more akin it to like Idlewild, if anybody saw that movie, okay. Um, where all the performances are actually performances mm-hmm. when the music comes up. Well, the whole uh,
0: like club vibe and the whole lounge scene, and that's part of the main characters' lives in this film. You know, we've got Rex and his basically adopted father, Polly, they have a failing club. Rex jumps ship after a while and, and goes and works on a club with his friend and that's kind of that's kind of how these people are living their day-to-day lives here
1: and the idea of yeah incorporating a musical performance into it makes
0: makes perfect sense total sense yeah well thank you thank you what how did um, you think through rebuilding some of the elements of the Oedipus story to yeah. modernize this?
2: Um, a lot of research uh, for instance Oedipus um, Rex, uh, along with King Rex, um, it also means clubfoot because of course mm. the boy when he was sent out to pasture with a sheep herder, they pinned his feet together. right. So in the original story, he has a club foot. So it kind of just made sense that we set it in the clubs. Um, when it came to the Sphinx and the Oracle, I started to update those, you know, giving homage to that particular you know uh, device. Um, Also within the clubs or also within the um, religious part of the communities, the Nigerian community, the Spanish, the East Spanish Harlem community and um, how we go through uh, up here in New York, uh, the old wise people that, um, you know, these ethnic groups kind of you know they don't really go to church but or if they do go to church it's like they'll still go back to the old you know guy who's at the bodega Mm who supposedly has all these herbs and stuff and that's where they get all their information um so yeah just bringing that in trying to make sense of that and bringing it updated as opposed to the whole you know Greek, Greek, um, oracle, superficial, you know, supernatural thing to it. So it does have a little supernatural element to it, but I wanted to make it at least real, in a sense, where we could all relate. For any of
0: our listeners that aren't familiar with the Oedipus tale, would you mind laying out like a brief groundwork of what happens in the original story? Oh, it's so
2: much fun. (laughs) 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 All right, on one side, you have... A young man and woman who have a child and they go to their oracle which is like a sage or a wise person and that oracle takes one look at the child and says this child is going to kill you as a father and take his mother um they get freaked out so they say they're going to uh let go of the child and kill the child but they give it to a sheep herder and that sheep herder goes out and instead of killing the child because he didn't want to he leaves it at the door of another village the village that he left it at was another couple that was a king and queen who were barren, so they take the child and raise the child as his own. Um, because there was another sheep herder who saw the whole interaction, who became exiled from them, started making accusations to the young boy who was Rex, telling him that basically you don't know who you are, you're not from here. So he goes and asks his parents, "Hey, you know, are you my real parents?" And they say, of course we are. You know, they not want to tell him he's basically adopted. Right. He's having troubles of his own fitting in. So he goes to the same oracle, and that same oracle tells him, you're going to kill your father and take your mother. Since his parents just told him that he is not adopted, he believes that the oracle is talking to them. So he leaves. Um, meanwhile, in the first village, His parents have come under a monster, which is a sphinx, that will not let anybody in or out of the village, and so their village is dying. But the father is able to sneak out with a couple of people and goes on the road, and he's blind, and he's trying to just go get help for their village. He runs into his son. They don't know each other. They will not move out of each other's way. They're cock-blocking. And so Rex kills his father unknowingly, that he did not know it was his father he then goes to the village um and the sphinx has said i'll let you in if you can answer a riddle gives him a riddle he does answer it he kills the sphinx and then the village accepts rex and they flourish again which then rex uh marries the queen which is his true mother uh they have tons of kids about eight kids but then after about 10 or 15 years, the village starts to decline again, and he wants to know why. So he goes back to the Oracle or sends his brother-in-law back to the Oracle, and the Oracle says, "You, somebody in your village has done a great misdeed, they killed the king, and that's why your village is failing. So Rex decides to find out who that was, and they go and find one person who basically survived the fray between Rex and his father, who comes in and tells him the whole tale that you are actually the son of the king, you killed your father, and now you're married to your mother. So the mother goes and hangs herself, and Rex gouges his eyes out, and leaving his kids to sort of fend for themselves, but to take care of the father. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much the story.
1: Yeah, he mm-hmm. sort of just ends up wandering the desert, right? Blind and, yeah. you know, exiled.
0: I, I love that uh, the story of Oedipus really brings up the themes of like fate versus free will, um, and uh, w- what's your take on fate and free will in the framework of this story, and also in the one that you've you've revamped? Revamp's not really um, the right word for it because it's very it's an energetic story as it is. Yeah,
2: I think fate for me, especially within this story, I think there is no free will. Um, we think there's an illusion of free will, kind of like there's an illusion of democracy. There's an illusion of all these things that are around us. Um, they're just things that are pulling the strings that we have no clue about. And we are predestined to follow whatever path it is that has been set down for us. Um, you can succeed in that life. You can do some things, but I think what in this particular story you're set out to do is what you're going to, you're going to do.
1: Uh, so you you subscribe to the the message of the stories themselves that you're you, nobody can escape their fate in,
2: in this, not in real life. Oh oh oh! Uh, I it, misunderstood. It, yeah, yeah. So definitely within this story, yes. It,
1: we, I want when you talk when you talk about taking taking this classic tale and working it into the story that you want to tell in in New York City with all these different uh, elements of black culture that you're blending together. Is there is it a blend of it's fun to try to introduce as many different elements as you can and then, like, a sense of responsibility to try to to try to get as many in as you can? How do, how do you work that balance? Is there a balance that you need to be working?
2: Oh, there's definitely always a balance. Um, for me, um, the reason why I chose this story is just because it's so chock full uh, of what I call religious um, – yeah, a religious doctrine, mm. in a way, in both the original story and in my updated version. How, and especially because I use people of color, that we go to our religious communities first. Um, even though you can have facts that are straight right in front of you, people are gonna go to the religious leaders first to mm. to find out what they're supposed to do in life. So the Bible is very big, you know, and all that stuff. Um, and I wanted to bring that in to this story and make it a full full, full front um, explanation as to why things are the way they are. And then for me, I'm a big lover of music and I see things visually. So the artistry and the music um, is just, it's, it's pretty prevalent in all of my work. I, I'm really a big music lover. And when I write, I'll have, you know, if I'm writing a certain scene, I'll put on music that I think is a temp track to that scene to just spur on what I think is being said or how it's it's being played out. Oh, cool. So those pretty much things are, are there. What did you listen to while you were writing this? Oh, gosh. Uh, I listened to a group called Mandrill, uh, a group back in the 70s, really kind of um, uh, old school funk um like really, really deep funk. Um, I listened to classical, of course, all the time, especially in the beginning. Uh listened to some um, rave music that was uh, pretty, pretty deep rave too. Um, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I wanted to get a, a really sense of how far uh, deep rave goes. Well, yeah, I so mean, we won't go that far. You do in um, house.
1: You do in trance. You do in dubstep.
2: Uh, yeah. Dubstep and house. Yeah. Um, so and really mixing that up in there. Um. Of course, we got ourselves a little bit of gospel and jazz. Mm-hmm. Definitely a lot of jazz.
1: Even yeah. the, even even a bit of uh, some Afro-Cuban stuff, if I remember right.
2: Yeah. For the Santeria. Yeah. It, so I know we talk
0: about like what the story means and why the story is so appealing as a writer. But what really about like you made you go, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this classic tale and I'm going to update it because I see all of this possibility. What was really the spark for you to move forward and get this all out there?
2: Uh, It's just one of those stories that I've heard over and over, but whenever, whenever I've heard it, it's always been from a male point of view. And so males tend to focus more on the sex. Um, between the son and the mother. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was like, there's gotta be much more than that, you know? Um, And as I started delving into the research of it, that's when I became more and more interested in it and wanted to tell the full landscape of the story. Um, And it was just so vibrant to me. I'm like, oh, so this whole thing, you know, um, about your first love, whether it be a mother to her son, a son to his mother, because, you know, for, That child relationship and bonding will never ever be broken, um, but can be subverted if you're not careful. It just just spoke so so deeply to me that that these two souls would almost stay connected and could never be broken.
1: When you talk about relationships, though, and you know you're you're building up this. Uh, this world here, Rex for sure is the main character, but it it he it's not a solo story. Once you really get into things, and it's not too long into it when he's made friends with uh, Akin, who he's working with, and Reese. It's really sort of the three of them as a as a as a trio for a while.
2: Oh yeah. Definitely,
1: and, and and I'm not familiar if if he did did Rex have a, a, in in the classic story was there a, was there a girlfriend was there a, a right hand man buddy before everything goes to goes to hell with his actual parents?
2: No, no, there wasn't. The only right hand man that he had was uh, his wife's uh, brother, so it was his brother-in-law okay. who was really his right hand, um, and that's the kind of. Uh, relationship I was trying to show um but I didn't want them related at that point I just wanted it to be a bro thing that he Mm -hmm. had his bro that you know will always have his back
0: um you know when you talk about this bond between a mother and her child and that kind of being the heartbeat that inspired you to write this it it just makes me curious to ask that do you have kids of your own
2: I do I just I (laughs) my little my little pain in my ass um yes she's six she just turned six not too long ago um Mm -hmm. and uh she is my heart and yeah so I'm one of those people that I never knew that I could love anything as much as I love her Mm -hmm. um just it blew my mind and to the point where I had irrational fears, like, oh, she's gonna be taken, you know? Oh, we can't do this, because I just felt like I had to protect her 24 hours, and trying to work through that. So, yeah, that bond is is pretty real there, that there's this little being that's growing up, you know, um, from the time that you just have them, you know, on your chest, to watching them, and you're trying to give them all the instructions so that by the time they're 18 to 20, they can go off and and do things on their own. And just watching her grow up is just such a, I can't even explain it, but it's, it's something that will never ever be broken. You're time- and my mom tells me that today. She's like, you'll always be my baby and blah, blah, I'm like, you quit embarrassing me? you know. Like, I'm a grown-ass woman here, you know? Like,
0: <laughs> oh, man, I bet she takes so much joy in embarrassing you if she can. <laughs> yes,
2: and now she's like, ha, ha, look at your kid doing this. I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> and
0: when you were writing this, did your timeline from when you started writing this overlap with having your daughter at all?
2: Um, yeah, yeah, because this has been going for about five or six years. Yeah, definitely. so
0: it was kind of around when you had Hatter then. Yeah. That's cool. Did you write anything else that was kind of based on that mother and child spiritual bond?
2: No, uh, some of the other stuff, like most of my stuff is kind of um, not super, yeah, I guess it's supernatural fantasy. Um, I did write one other thing that we're trying to get to Netflix, which is a uh, a series um that does involve a mother and a son um and them having to come to blows and kill each other mm. uh yeah i'm kind of dark um <laughs> all that good old love that's cool um, without
1: the dark we don't recognize the light you're good keep going
2: <laughs> so uh so yeah so that would be the only thing but most of the other stuff i've i've written is mostly in that fantasy base um there is a child usually somewhere in the story but it's never quite like oh mother and daughter or mother and son right. kind of thing. I just really I see
0: that in this story particularly when you're like well kind of the heart of it is this mother child bond. It just happens that it's a it's a male child and then later on in terms of the classical story they end up sleeping together. So you know that's kind of like something that's just written into the story and I, and you don't need to rewrite
1: and i like how you're 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 oh. emphasizing the fact that it's about it you know, the sex does happen and it's a pivotal part of the story but it's not that's not the focus. That's not the like, you know, the 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 pearl clutching sort. You're not doing it for shock value. It's it's more about just this intrinsic relationship because from the minute Ayaba starts coming into this club that Rex is working at, they 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 notice each he notices her for sure and there's like there's a relationship that builds between them even though they don't really know each other all that well at all.
2: Right. Right. And that's where I come into like is it fate? Is it free will because right. it was just such a an attraction that was there between these two people. And it's also that kind of Greek theory of, you know, we we come into this world, supposedly we were all, you know, we're just a half or a fourth of a being that was created. And then by the time you get dropped down to this planet, you, you've split off. So could it been possible that they were already connected and then, you know, this is them coming back together?
0: Right. And in your script, too, you know, you allude to the pretty eyes, the pretty eyes, the pretty eyes. And by the end of the script, my understanding is that um, both Rex and his mother have the same eyes, correct?
2: Exactly. Yes.
0: So that brings up this whole theme of sight versus blindness as well, which plays throughout the Oracle. It plays into people saying, you don't know who you are. You don't know who your parents are. Mm -hmm. You can't see what's right in front of you. And this whole idea of like, you know, if you have... A grown woman who knows she's lost a son who potentially thinks that there, that son could be out there and suddenly she's continuously meeting this person who has the same eyes as her. It brings into that like, well, how much do you really want to see and what are the boundaries between what a person can or cannot deal with at any given point?
2: Yeah, Exactly.
0: I think we should read the scene that we're going to read for today.
1: I think we should, too. I think we've set it up nicely talking about this mother-son relationship and the way it it starts out almost non-existent and then builds up as we're getting to the point uh, from the scene we're going to read, which is going to be scene 111, where it's the aftermath of Rex and his mother having uh, physically expressed their feelings for one another, even though they don't know that they're the mom. They don't
0: know their mother and child. Um so I hope not <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> uh, Joya, we're gonna we're gonna turn you down for just a minute so that we can really do some Justice to your work here on the show, which is a lot of pressure for us now that I've said that. Yeah, I know. We're gonna right? do some justice to your work. Ugh, yeah, God. right. We're gonna we're gonna we're share gonna... your words with the listeners. That's exactly. That's much better. That's all we're we're gonna do here. And
1: also, sure. uh, we we like to point out in scripts like this where it's it's uh, non-white characters that we are going to be reading, and Allison and I are white people uh, reading non-white characters.
0: Right. That's just because you know we're reading. Um, we have, uh, today I'm going to be reading for Ayaba, the mother, Jack is going to be reading for Rex and Frank's going to be doing our action headings. Um, Frank, if you want to say, Hey, how's it going? It's fine. Hi Frank. Welcome to the show. I
3: Um, just walked in
0: (laughs) just casually, (laughs) um, listeners, if you are following along, like Jack said, we're going to be doing scene 111 which is on script page 96. So you definitely need to read the script. Yeah, this is kind of near the end. Yeah, this is kind of near the end. So, Frank, whenever you are ready, take it away.
3: Interior, Harlem apartment building. Phone is buzzing on the table. It reads Reese with her picture on the phone. We hear laughter in the bedroom. Camera follows laughter. (laughs) Pillow talk time. Rex is sitting up with Ayaba leaning on him.
0: I'm being serious.
3: Okay, well, that's just a little weird, but whatever floats your boat. They both laugh and then quiet
0: down. So. So? Should we talk about what happened earlier or keep running?
1: Running. Running sounds good.
0: Mm, I see.
1: No, I just... Shit, that was too much. I feel like I killed that guy. Don't
0: ever say that.
1: I know, but... If I hadn't tried to grab him, I feel like he just would have stayed there on the sidewalk or something. He wouldn't have tried to get away, and then he might still be here. And then you'd know what he wanted to tell you. Maybe he might have left you alone then.
0: He already told me what he wanted to tell me. I just didn't want to hear anymore. After two decades, it's a little late.
1: Two decades? Like... Twenty years for real? How old are you, <laughs>
0: boy? You better get out of here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm just saying, is all.
0: Oh, that will be all you ever say again. Didn't your mother teach you how to treat a lady?
1: I'm just teasing. So, what happened for real with him? Iaba sits up.
0: He killed my son.
1: What? You being serious? I would not joke. Uh, no, I- I'm sorry. Right. I-, I I just really he killed your kid. Jeez. Damn, then maybe he got what he deserved tonight.
0: Yeah, except he then tried to tell me he didn't kill him, and he is alive.
1: Wait, was he for real?
0: I don't know. Could explain why he was out now. He was sent away for life without parole. All of a sudden, he's on the street talking about my son is alive, and he didn't do it.
1: Okay, so you didn't follow up. I mean, this is your son, right? You know, we can call the prison where he was held and find out release date and why. You're the ex, so it could be, like, some sort of protection thing. Mickey can look into this for us.
0: Us? Since when did we become us?
1: What? No, I... It's not what I meant.
3: Ayaba jumps out of bed and puts a robe on. She leaves the room, and Rex is confused. After a moment, she comes back with his running clothes in hand.
0: They are dry now.
3: Oh. Just like that. I'm being dismissed.
0: Just don't want things to get confused.
3: Rex starts to get dressed, but is pretty pissed and confused about what is happening.
0: So,
1: try not being confusing. All I was trying to say, if I had a son that might be alive after he was supposedly dead, I think I would want to know more. What what are you scared of? Make sure the brother's all right. No one's asking you to disrupt his life.
0: Disrupt his life? You have no idea of what you are talking about. You have no idea... To have a child ripped, literally, from your arms, and you never see him again, and then to be told, they found the body mangled beyond recognition in a dumpster, and the man you love with all of your heart has done this. My heart was ripped twice. Twice! Uh,
1: uh, Look, I'm-
0: Sorry. Yeah, that is all anyone can say. Addo kept saying it for years. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You just don't understand.
1: Oh, so he was crazy. Of
0: course he was crazy. What kind of person would kill a baby because some witch doctor said the baby was going to kill you? What? Damn. I swore I would never rehash this shit again.
3: She leaves the room and goes to the living room. He follows. I guess I'll see you at work. He grabs his phone and leaves. Ayaba pours what little wine there is in a bottle into the glass and downs it.
0: And scene. Oh man, man, that's a big scene. That's a yeah. Oh, gosh, thanks for letting us read that. That's I mean, that's a big moment in a in a in a script. And there's obviously a lot that builds up to that. So for us to just kind of pull it out and share those words, you got to read the screenplay. Yeah, it's there's a lot going on prior to this.
1: Joya, you do such a cool thing with this script, the little like visual hints that you're giving. Just in case, if somebody does go to see this when it gets produced and they don't know the actual story that it's based on, there's a couple really cool things you do in the script to visually cue the audience. Don't forget, Ayaba is Rex's mom. There's a couple times when he's with her at the club and his phone rings and the caller ID just says mom on it. And later when Akin texts him a picture of Ayaba and then all of a sudden it cuts right away because his mom is calling him. And there's a really good one that comes near the end when after it's after this scene, after he and Ayaba have their little moment and he comes back to his apartment and his friend is saying, hey, man, what happened? Your girl here is is mad at you and he says nothing happened and his friend says come on you you smell like clean laundry no woman is going to clean your stinky clothes unless she's your mom or they're or you're having sex with them <laughs> like it, it he hits both of them it's so good
2: yeah <laughs> do,
0: you, do you feel proud about all the things that you've really been able to pull forward to this modern story of course yeah, yeah you Should. yeah you should i mean I mentioned it in the morning, in the beginning, that this is just a powerhouse of a feature film. Yeah. And it really is the way that you've taken such a classic, epic tale and then brought it forward into the modern time. And it's still classic and epic, and what these people are going through. Their stakes are high, their lives as they are are high. And those are some things that you just kind of updated very smartly yeah, along with, the way
1: with real strong human themes. I think you did a great job of balancing like the, the grandness of it with the humanity of living in the city, going to the club, trying to scrape by a living.
2: Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. There's especially a, here in New York. It um, it's even more uh, heightened just because everything is so much more expensive and literally you can lose your shirt, um, you know, in a couple of hours, really mm-hmm.
1: and it's a high risk high reward thing because i mean you're you you know you're working at the club scene which i don't know a whole lot about but i know from going to bars and i know the idea that it's you know it think you know customers can be fickle and if a place is great it is great and if it's not it's not
2: oh yeah definitely and especially here i mean we we have a joke that here in New York, it's like it's it really is you know here today gone tomorrow. Yeah. You can have some place that's been here for ten years, or you can have some place that's a pop up bar that here for two weeks and then all of a sudden the place is cleared out and everybody looks around is like what the hell happened here? Yeah, mm-hmm. you
1: know. There's another couple themes in this script that I noticed. One of them was the idea of. When a character says, "Hey, just give them their space," the uh, when there's a there's a suggestion more than once that, "Hey, just let so and so have their space and it'll work out." And I think almost every time it's brought up in the script, it's almost like giving that person their space is a mistake, and you shouldn't do that because things end up going the way that they go. Is there was that a was that a conscious thing for you? Do you feel like the idea of giving somebody space is maybe the time when you should go to the most?
2: Yeah, because most of the time when people give each other space. Um, Even if someone is asking, like, I need some space, it's usually out of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's fear because everyone knows what's going to happen. And then from that point on, what you feared was going to happen actually happens. So, you know, it's just human nature. Give me some space. Okay. Well, you know, the next thing is you're going to be breaking up. Yeah. Um, Or, you know, give me some space on this. That person is that time for that relationship, whatever it may be and whatever it entails is pretty much ending it, it's dead in the water you think that's just
0: human nature that that's what people do
2: yeah definitely
0: i'm only and i'm not saying this to be disrespectful but it makes me think about like um fights that i've had with my husband philip and sometimes i get so emotionally worked up that i do need us need a second and i and i'll have to say to him listen i just need i need a few moments i need you to go away I'll see you in just a few minutes and we can come back to this. And what it gives me is space to like task myself or kind of really work through what it is that I'm actually trying to deal with. And that little bit of space that we have, it it builds us back together where he comes back having a few more moments of thoughtfulness and I come back having a like a a few more moments of thinking through my emotions and we build from there. So I'm just asking about like what that difference is between what I'm thinking and what you're thinking about in terms of things ending.
2: Um, What I think about, well, the kind of space that I'm thinking, when you're in a deep relationship and you know you're in a fight, uh, like you said, even when you're married or, or whatever, and you're like, just, "I'm about to punch you in the nose," just can we, you know, can you please just go away for a second? Yeah, is, is is quite different from what the space that I'm I'm talking about, which is, um, it really is the the ending of any relationship, and people are like, "Hey, I I need space, not space from this re- from us, you know, building to a climax where it's like we're just screen- no one's hearing each other right now. Yeah. This is the kind of space of where you're like, yeah, I'm gonna need some time to think if mm-hmm. I actually want to continue with you. Yeah, or so this not. is like
0: a subtext space. This is one of those things that's like, okay, this isn't working for me. We're gonna just let it play itself out without any kind of intervention,
2: right? Mm-hmm. And most people do that when they're just not. They're already not- at the end. Yeah, they're already there, and they just don't want to say the words, so when they take that space, and then it's usually the other person coming back, whoever that person is, like, can we talk? And then it's that uncomfortableness, yeah, I sort of thought about it, I, mm, you know, not you, it's me, you know, that kind of thing, and then it's over.
0: Did You know, that's not something that was the in the original Oedipus stories, I'm assuming, <laughs> um, so I just want to know why you decided to put that in here, is that something that's happened to you, or that you've done to somebody before?
2: No, um, actually, it was in the original Oedipus story. Mm, okay. um, at the very, very end, when they do, the way it was, okay, so the way it was uh, written about and her research, and then what Sophocles did with the matter was that the fact um, that the uh, son and mother did come together after they had gotten all this information, and they basically did say, you know, we just need, some space. We need some time to figure this out because it was wrecking everyone around them. Everybody was sickened by the notion that they had something like six to eight kids. Yeah. um, Together. And this is why their villages face, you know, basically uh, falling into oblivion and that he killed a beloved king to get there. Um, And that someone who was so close to you, you know, which is supposed to be your family, Kim member, you know, Mm -hmm. his own son took out a beloved king. Yeah. So at that point, um, they did take their space. They came back and the mother basically it was reported that she just looked at him and said, basically I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And then she went and hung herself mm-hmm. like right after that. Yeah. She had and a little bit of
0: clarity just, there. Saw him. Was right. like, nope. Not happening. Yeah. Sacred bomb. of a family have completely shattered. We're <laughs> done here.
2: Yeah. And then the the whole, you know, thing about it was she left young kids uh, she left her own kid and grandkid at the same time. Oh, right. Um, You know, bereft of a mother and it just, you know, totally broke. And then he was so like he couldn't believe that he was the whole reason that all of this is falling down. Yeah. And especially when he had been told about all of this. From the Um, get-go. And so that's why he went and did what he did and then exiled himself thinking that he would be better off if he, you know, was alone.
1: Which gets back into what you talked about with when somebody says, give me some space, and then you give it to him, and then the relationship comes to an end. The idea of this self-fulfilling prophecy, where even though they were all told in the beginning of this story, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to kill your dad, and you're going to get with your mom. Nope, I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that. And then in the end, it still went the way the Oracle said in the first place, this this fate that you can't escape.
2: Right. And so, you know, I always uh, look at it like... Um when I used to research c- serial killers I'm like is it is it n- nature or is it nurture yeah. like can I really look at somebody who's a psychopath and if we give them all the love in the world are we able to change that core structure that they're that path that they're on mm-hmm. where they're going to do a lot of damage and you know science and everything that's around they pretty much say no no you can't um so Who knows if we're really predestined to do things, you know, like why are people in the world that are so bad here with no empathy whatsoever? What is their path of life? Maybe they are supposed to be some kind of catalyst for something and that is the path that they're on and then nothing's going to change that.
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, and the idea of being involved in something that's bigger than you. I mean, that's not a new idea in humanity Anytime recently. It, that's uh, yeah, that, that, It's a lot. Of, there's a lot of big concepts in this. And without trying to sound too grandiose, Joy, I think that you were destined to adapt this story because this script is killer.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And thank you for sharing it with us. If somebody has something to contribute to your journey and con- contribute to your process with this story, what's the best way for somebody to get in touch with you?
2: Um, email, email, and or, you know, drop me a line on Instagram, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Is there a good email address that uh, we could uh, put out for people?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, joya Bradley at gmail. Great. Pretty simple.
1: Joy, I, w- we w- I wish you all the luck in the world. I, I, I'm so glad to hear that there's other elements of production that are kicking in on this thing, because I think this is a, this would be a super cool story to get out there to people. And, uh, I, I really do hope that, uh, that things continue moving forward.
2: Oh, thank you. Yes, so do we. I'll (laughs) definitely keep you guys updated as well. Thanks. Thank you. We We would love to know
1: more. Yes, please.
2: Thank you.
1: All right. Cool. That was joy. There's so many cool things in this script that she does. We didn't get a chance to get into how the way she describes certain shots And like, there'll be like, you're there, you'll be in a club and you're looking down from the ceiling and the camera kind of pans down and then into a light. And then it cuts to something else that matches what you just cut from. Yeah, She does so many really specifically described shots that I really, it made it really that much more fun to read the script.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense though, because she was talking about how visual she can be. Mm -hmm. And so if she's got that visual picture, that's really like driving the way she's feeling and what she's writing, then we're going to get that paint basically all over every page and it's just going to bleed through which is what this script feels like a very like a very composed thorough piece of writing.
1: Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of it being, you know, a performance of the story yes. that sort of comes back and forth between the movie and then the the, the performance on the stage involving yep. the people that are in the movie. Yeah. It, it, I mean, that's always fun. Yeah, that's always sure. fun.
0: Yeah. So I really enjoyed that. And uh, listeners, I encourage you to read it as well because it is just an incredible script with, you know, apparently some really great things going on for it. So, you know, read it, keep it in your heart, keep it in your mind and look for it uh, in the future because it sounds like there are some things going on.
1: Uh, If you have some things that you would like to get going on, or if you've got some things going on. Let's get it
0: on. (laughs) Don't do that. We just had had a pillow talk scene. We handled it so well. I got to be your mom.
1: Oh, don't say that. Oh, my God. I got to turn away. Uh, If you've written a script that you uh, want to have us read, you should go on to scriptshopshow.com slash submit, and you can uh, send it to us.
0: We would love to read your work. (laughs) And <laughs> is still facing away from me I'm facing a wall studio, of reel-to-reels right now. <laughs> Which is so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Script Shop Show. And on Twitter, I am your bestie Westie.
1: And I'm embarrassed. No, I'm... <laughs> I, I am at Script Shop Jack. Uh,
0: are you... I'm not going to take this any further because I just know that I can go too far for you. Folks, thanks for listening
1: to the show. It's been uh, it's been great having you. Thanks to Joya Bradley for uh, sending us her script and uh, coming on to talk about it.
0: And until next week, friends, that's a wrap.
1: Script Shop was created by Allison West